Father, I ask a blessing on this body. Though we are scattered, we are one together by your spirit. I pray, Father, you will bind us together in your word this morning. Give us a shared experience, even if we cannot share one another's company. Give us a shared understanding, even as we are unable to fellowship in this time of study. Father, give us a shared commitment to carry it out in obedience, in the walk that you've put before each of us, so that collectively, Father, you may be glorified not only by what we learn, but by what we do with it. Help us to be a body, Father, who lives out this word in a way that glorifies you so that the times, though they are evil, may be put to good use for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're continuing in our study of Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders in the temple in Jerusalem a few days before he dies. Now, you may know that today on our calendar is Palm Sunday, as it's commonly known, although if you were with me a few weeks ago when we studied this day in Jesus' life, you'll remember that it's probably better called Cloak Sunday for reasons you can learn if you go back to that earlier lesson. But this is the day on the calendar that Jesus walks in or rides in, as it was, on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem in the week that he died. Now, in our study, we've moved a few days past that. We're actually on the Tuesday of the week that he died. So our calendar of remembrance today is starting to catch up with the calendar of events in the story of Jesus' passion. In fact, next Sunday, as you know, we'll be uh, celebrating Easter, uh, which is jumping quite ahead of where we are in the story. But nonetheless, you'll find that what we'll be studying next week in this chapter fits perfectly with the theme of Easter. But before we get there, we still have something to do today. Now, last week, we studied the parable of the wedding banquet. That's when Jesus compared his offer of the kingdom to Israel to that of a wedding banquet invitation sent out by a king. And in that parable, the king invites a list of guests to be uh, honored with attending his son's marriage, and the invitation goes out by way of his slaves, and he expects those guests to respond in joy and to anticipate this event with gladness, But when those guests turned their collective attention away from that invitation, they refused it, the king chose to go invite other guests. And as we studied last week, that parable depicts Israel's response to Jesus' offer of the kingdom. And as the parable explained, Israel was indifferent to the offer, and the religious leaders of the day were hostile to the offer. But as a result, the Lord took that offer and gave it to another group. He withdrew it from that generation of Israel and he gave it instead to other guests, those others being the Gentile church. You and me and all who have been in the church since that time, we are the ones the Lord has chosen to be a part of this uh, coming wedding celebration by faith instead of that generation of Israel and generations that have come since. Now we're blessed to be included in that marriage supper and our opportunity to be included was made possible because of Israel's decision to reject her Messiah in the day that he came for them. Nevertheless, Israel remains God's chosen people, and the Lord has promised to bless that people with the kingdom one day, which tells us that the Lord's choice to favor the Gentile church now in the days that we live is not a permanent substitution. There is a day coming, the Bible tells us, when the Lord will again return to Israel and offer them the kingdom yet again. And they will accept it in that future day. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11 that Israel is again going to be called and chosen 
to be part of the kingdom in a future time. Paul says this in Romans eleven twenty-eight. He says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, meaning Israel, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, well, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. So Paul says that that in the day that Israel rejected their Messiah, Generations of Jews at that point became God's enemy for our sake. Because of Israel's rejection of Jesus, the Gentiles uh, have now been included in the plan of salvation. But Paul goes on to say that that change is not permanent because the gifts and the calling of God are, he says, irrevocable, which means that the Lord is not done with Israel for he made promises to Israel. He gifted to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants a covenant. And one day he will call Abraham's descendants into the kingdom. And those promises he made are irrevocable because they are unconditional. In the way that God gave that covenant to Abraham and to his descendants, he did it entirely based on his own faithfulness. It had no bearing uh, on whether Israel was faithful or not. It was only dependent on God being faithful. And of course, we know that he is. And therefore, since we know that the generation that saw Jesus come the first time did not receive the promise that God made to his people, then it stands to reason that a future generation must receive it because somebody's gonna get it. And that future generation is coming in a time that we know is yet to come. The Lord will again return to his people Israel. He will show them mercy again. They will receive him as king as they should have the first time. And as Paul says, in that moment he will show them mercy just as he has shown Gentiles mercy in the meantime. Now, if you're sitting here right now wondering why I have gone into this opening for our lesson this morning, it's because of how we ended last week. Last week, we read through chapter 22, verse 14, but if you were paying attention last week, you may have noticed I never offered an explanation of verse 14. In verse 14, the Lord said, many are called, but few are chosen. And to understand that verse properly, it's important to understand the context in which it's found and the background which I just explained. Jesus had just taught a parable about Israel being called to receive their kingdom. Now that call went out effectively to the entire nation, more or less, but yet only a few within Israel received that call and put their faith in Jesus as Messiah back in that day. You can think of the men uh, that followed Jesus, the apostles, for example. They believed and they put their faith in it. And women like uh, Mary of Magdala or the Samaritan woman at the well, these are examples of those who received the good news gladly, but they were in the minority by far. So in verse 14, Jesus says, these few within Israel were chosen to be included in the wedding feast, but The rest of Israel was set aside for a time. So in that sense, you can say many in Israel were called, but few were chosen to attend in the end. Now what Jesus is explaining with that comment is why his earthly ministry will appear to have failed, at least in the very near future of this story. And yet in reality, it wasn't failing at all. It was going exactly according to God's plan. Few were chosen in that day so that God could be just in setting Israel aside while offering opportunity 
to the Gentiles. And all of this is exactly as God expected. In fact, it was exactly as he foretold by the prophets. Elsewhere in Romans 11, Paul says this in 11.7. He says, what then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. So he says Israel was seeking something. What were they seeking? Well, ostensibly, they were seeking a Messiah. That's what they said. That's what they were claiming. But they did not obtain what they were seeking because when the opportunity came to them, they rejected it. And instead, Paul says, only those in Israel on whom God had mercy, those like the apostles or the Samaritan woman, only they were invited to the wedding. The rest, he says, were hardened. And what Paul means is that the Lord left them in their sin. He withdrew the offer of the kingdom so that they could not have it. And that decision had the effect of hardening their hearts. Well, to the point that the Jewish nation has evermore been embittered against Jesus and against Christianity. Among those who are observant Jews, Orthodox Jews, certainly the ultra-Orthodox, if someone would dare to mention the name of Jesus, Yeshua, in their presence, it is customary for them to spit on the ground as they hear the name. That's how embittered, that's how hardened Jewish people can be against Jesus. Paul said, that's your evidence of Israel becoming enemies of God for our sake. After this day of testing, in the story that Matthew's telling us, after this Tuesday, Matthew's narrative is gonna pivot very uh, clearly into a dark space, into a uh, retelling of the circumstances surrounding Jesus' torture and death. And as we go through that, and this is coming in, in the weeks ahead, as we go through this, and as we study what happened to Jesus and all the detail that we have, we have to keep this in mind. We have to continue to remind ourselves many were called, but few were chosen in that day, and it was for a good purpose. God was working a plan here, and this plan had as its ultimate purpose bringing many sons and daughters to glory. As the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter two, verse nine, the writer says, we do not see Jesus who was made for a little while lower than angels because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So Jesus, the writer says, was perfected by his sufferings, what that means is that his sinlessness was proven by his willingness to obey the Father's requirement that he suffer for our sake. And then by his sufferings, he becomes the author of our salvation. And that's Matthew's point here. In other words, the hostility that Jesus endured at the hands of his own people, the Jewish nation, was a means that God was using for our good, both for the Gentiles' good in the meantime, ultimately for Israel's good in a day to come as well. And as we study this account all the way through, we need to understand the circumstances on that day in the temple where he's confronted by these men and being challenged, and in the days that follow as they betray him through a conspiracy, putting him to death on a cross and so on. All of this we need to understand as good, as a good thing God was doing. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. 
The Lord turned the hostility and the violence done against his own son into a blessing for us and for the world. You cannot name a more tragic moment in all human history than the one you see taking place here and what we'll be studying in the weeks to come. This is the moment when our creator is being unjustifiably subjected to mocking and hatred and torture and death at the hands of his own creation. I mean, consider that for a moment. The very hands that nail him to a cross are hands he created in that moment, fulfilling a purpose. Never has there been a greater injustice done in the death of Jesus, and yet never has there been a greater good accomplished as a result. And as the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus tasted death for everyone, leading to glory for those who receive that payment. Because in the end, we know where the story is going. The Lord raises up Jesus to glory, demonstrating that he has victory over death. Now, understanding where the story is going is central to gaining a proper perspective on the events, to understanding why it's going on, right? Him being killed, him laying his life down for us, and so on. You need to see it from that point of view. They're not getting the better of Jesus. Uh, This conspiracy is not undoing the work of God. Uh, God is using their sinful plans to accomplish his purpose. And so it lets us see the events of this story from a point of view that is shared by God's point of view. We see it as God sees it, not as we might otherwise. But that same change in perspective can't be limited to understanding the passion story of Jesus. You're supposed to take that same point of view into everything you face, including into the events that the world is facing with us today. I mean, because as bad as things may be, or as bad as they may become, we need to be mindful of the fact that the Lord is doing good things through them. And that's the question that should be on our minds throughout the next season, whatever it brings. What are the good things the Lord is doing that he needed this set of circumstances to achieve? And you might be asking yourself things like, well, what good is he doing in my life through these circumstances? Or what kind of spiritual growth is he producing in the body of Christ worldwide through the trial that believers are gonna be enduring wherever they are? I'd like to think of things like, well, what new ministries are getting started right now that wouldn't have existed? Or which ministries are getting strengthened as a result of adapting and changing to the circumstances? And on the other hand, what unhelpful trends within the church or wrong attitudes or bad teaching may be extinguished through the circumstances we're going through? How many new opportunities is the Lord creating for people to hear the gospel? How many hearts is he turning to the question of what comes after death. Only time is gonna tell, but until that time passes, we cannot evaluate the badness of our current circumstances. We have to rely on our faith knowing God is good and he is at work around us at all times for his glory as he has promised to accomplish in, in this world and in our lives. Now look, I get that most of us probably knew this before I said any of that. And I assume that it's not hard to embrace what I just said intellectually. But here's the problem. It's all intellectual until we are the ones facing a tragedy. Until it's our life that's been turned upside down. And then the real test comes. Look, we're all gonna experience tragedy in our lives, uh, one way or another. If not in the present circumstances, certainly sooner or later, something will come our way. I like to say that no one gets out of this life unscathed. You know, we all get something. Pick your poison, whatever it's gonna be. God is gonna bring some kind of trial, some kind of tragedy into our life because that's the kind of life we live in a world that is fallen, 
and sinful. This is not heaven, thankfully, and there's no way to make it so, not in our own power. So life will have trouble. But Jesus told us to have courage in the midst of things that may happen to us, whatever they may be, knowing that with him we have peace. He says in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. We know Jesus overcame the world, which it means this, he lived in it, he took the worst it could offer, he experienced it the way we do, he went to the grave, and then he came back from the dead. So now, in his glorified form, he will never again be subjected to the evil of this world, the hurt of this world, the damage it can do to us. He has overcome all of that in the fact that he has risen into a form that will never be subjected to it again. And that's the same future that we have if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You have, in that sense, overcome the world. Now, some people misunderstand that phrase or misteach it into thinking that it means that this world in its current form can't touch us anymore. That's nonsense. You live even a day in this world, you know that's not true. And certainly if you live long enough, you'll see that for yourself. That's not what Jesus was saying. He's saying we have overcome the world in him because we share the same future as him. There is a day coming when we too will be resurrected into a new body. And in that future day, nothing in this world will ever harm us or disappoint us again, the Bible assures us. We will be like Jesus. That's the overcoming that we have been promised. What's the key then? The key to appreciating your current circumstances is one word, resurrection. Resurrection, our peace comes. Jesus says, you have peace in me. He means that our peace comes from knowing that our God is a God of resurrection. He is in the business of bringing dead things back to life. He gives life to your dead spirit as you place faith in Jesus Christ. He is going to one day turn the death of your body into opportunity to receive a new and glorified body that will never die again. And in the meantime, he can turn your suffering into opportunity for glory. But it's always in that order, friends. Suffering always comes before the glory, which is why Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that the Lord causes all things to work for good, which is a way of saying they don't start good. I mean, in the providence of God, he can take all the circumstances of our life and put it to work for some future eternal good outcome. But it is a work And only in time can you see how the Lord has taken bad things, quote, bad things, and accomplished some good for us eternally. So if you try to judge the outcome of your circumstances here and now, in the midst of your trial, while bad things are happening to you, you may be tempted to think that God has failed you or forgotten you. Or you may question God in some other way. You may even question whether he exists. Some would question even their faith. But in the midst of your circumstances, you cannot see the good that is coming because suffering will precede glory. It'd be no different than if the disciples tried to evaluate the success of Jesus' earthly ministry an hour after he had been put in the grave. They would have been too quick to make that judgment. Just remember, there is no plan B with God. Everything that happens on earth is plan A. Everything that happens in your life, especially the trials and the hardships, are God's plan for your life to achieve an eternally good outcome in a day to come. So in the meantime, we endure trials and difficulties knowing 
that when the trial is over, then and only then will it have accomplished its eternally good purpose. Only then will he bring it to an end. And in the meantime, we maintain a hopeful attitude that simply knows God is a God of resurrection. As James says, you count it all joy, brethren, when you face various trials because you know that in the facing of those trials and in the patient dealing and enduring of them, you will find a perfect result in time. And in time, you'll see why the trial was necessary. That's what Matthew is saying in one verse. He's saying, there were many called, but God chose few. And in the choosing of few, he set in motion uh, the events that led to Jesus' death. It wasn't a failure. It wasn't plan B. It was plan A. And because it happened, you're standing here with me, reconciled by our faith in Jesus Christ. So with that, let's return to the conflict that's taking place in the temple. We still have one more scene to do today, and that is another moment in which the religious leaders uh, come to Jesus with a trap. We'll start there again in chapter 22 in now verse 15. And it says that, then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? All right, well, this is the, the next trap. You know, you had the first encounter, which went on for a while. We've studied that since chapter 21, and in that encounter, you had uh, a combination of two religious groups. You had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees, they've now had their shot at Jesus and he rebuffed them and then he taught on several parables and really made fools of them in front of the crowd. So they've now slinked off to come up with a new plan. And after having been embarrassed, they come up, they, they decide, hey, we're gonna have to come up with something good here if we're gonna trap him. And they settle on a ingenious trap. The Pharisees come back now but this time they bring a new group. They bring the Herodians. Remember when we introduced this whole section, I told you about the three groups of religious leaders that dominated the landscape in Jesus' day, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians. Now we see the Herodians coming into the picture. Now remember, the Herodians are somewhat similar to the Pharisees in the sense that they take a conservative approach to the interpretation of Scripture, but they differed from Pharisees in one key way. Herodians supported Roman rule, and they gave their allegiance to King Herod. Pharisees, on the other hand, they hated Roman rule. They saw Herod as an illegitimate king. He wasn't even Jewish. And the only thing then that the Pharisees and the Herodians probably could have agreed on in that day was their joint opposition to Jesus. And that's what's brought them together now in this moment. And they come with this question. It's a a question designed to trap Jesus, to trick him. And as I said, the question is simple but ingenious. In fact, it's almost the perfect trap, almost. The trap works like this. They ask Jesus a question that has a yes or no answer. And no matter which of those answers Jesus chooses, he's gonna get in trouble with someone. They select an issue here that has a long-standing debate, was a long-standing debate in Jewish society, and there were passionate views on both sides of this issue. And the answer that Jesus gives, whichever one it is, will get him in trouble, either with Jewish authorities and with the Jewish crowds, or with the Roman authorities and those who favor Rome. So he's gonna be trapped, they think, by the question. And then, to make sure that he doesn't just sidestep the whole thing, like he did earlier when they asked him about where do you get your authority, and he said, well, you don't wanna answer with John the Baptist, I won't answer you. They don't wanna have that happen again. So 
they open their question with a strategic flattery. In verse 16, they start by saying, well, we know you're truthful. We know that you uh, teach the word of God truthfully. We know that you, uh, you know, defer to no one. Uh, you, you show no partiality. All of these things are true, of course, but what they're saying here is not stuff they actually believed. They're setting Jesus up. They're trying to ensure that Jesus would feel forced to answer this question one way or the other. Because after you give an introduction like that in front of a crowd, if Jesus had then refused to answer, he would actually appear to be the opposite of what they just called him out to be. He would appear to be worried about what people thought of him, or he would appear to be showing favoritism in some sense. So they have made it hard for Jesus to do anything except answer the question. Now, looking at the question, they say, should a Jew pay the poll tax to Caesar? Now, this is a question that had been a point of contention between Pharisees and Herodians for some time, and it it was hotly debated by all Jews in that day. Here's what they're debating. A poll tax, or you could also call it a head tax, was required by Rome uh, of everyone who lived under Roman authority in any province of Rome. And the payment of this tax was not a large amount of money, necessarily, uh, but it was considered a personal tribute to Caesar. In fact, Mark's gospel actually calls it a tribute tax for that reason. Rome imposed this tax in AD 6, and even though it was a small amount, Jews universally opposed it, and there was even a revolt within Judea at an earlier point when this tax was implemented, and that earlier revolt didn't go very far, but it did give rise to the zealot movement, and the zealots continued on after that. They're actually the ones who instigated the revolt in AD 66, which then resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. All of that had its beginnings, its root in the poll tax of AD 6. So the Jewish people fiercely opposed the tribute tax and they saw it as an affront to their sovereignty as a nation. And then the Pharisees opposed it for a whole nother reason. They opposed it because Caesar had declared himself to be God. to be a God. And so when you're giving tribute to a man who says he's God, to the Pharisee, that was uh, equivalent to idolatry because you're giving tribute to a God, so to speak. So in the view of a Pharisee, any Jew who would advocate for paying the tax or concede to it was participating in idolatry, was guilty of idolatry. Now the Herodians, on the other hand, as we said, they supported Rome and they preferred Roman rule. So they weren't particularly concerned about the tax, at least not in the sense of it being idolatry, and of course for the Romans themselves, they expected the tax to be paid no matter what you thought. And they took a dim view of anyone who would encourage disobedience to this law. So here's the problem for Jesus. If he opposes paying the tribute tax on whatever basis, then it would have offended the Herodians, and as such, they would have taken that charge before the Romans and used it to accuse Jesus. On the other hand, if Jesus had agreed with the Pharisees that the tax should be paid, then he would have upset the Pharisees who viewed it as idolatry, and the Pharisees would have taken that charge before the Sanhedrin and used it to accuse Jesus. So either he's going to support the tax and offend the Pharisees, or he's going to refuse the tax and he's going to offend the Herodians. And whichever group is offended is going to take that forward in some fashion to accuse Jesus. So one way or the other, he's trapped. How does he escape the trap? Well, verse 18. But Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. 
and they brought him a denarius. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, well then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Well, Jesus' response begins basically by calling these men for what he sees them to be and this situation for what it is. It's a farce, and he says they're hypocrites. They start with this flattery. You know, flattery is just a socially acceptable way to lie. And Jesus was having none of it. He knows they have not come with a sincere question in mind. They don't intend to follow any advice that he might give them. This is not as though they're gonna take what he gives them as as an answer and then work with it. They, They don't care what he says. They're just trying to trap him. So the flattery was a ploy. The question is a trap, and Jesus says, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. And then he turns the tables on these men. He says, uh, show me the coin used for the poll tax. Now, he doesn't name the type of coin because he wants them to name it. That's part of the point he's making. Romans only accepted their own currency. So a denarius was the Roman instrument of currency, the coin of the Roman Empire, uh, whereas the Jews used a shekel. That was the coin for Jews. And he asked them, show me the coin that you're allowed to use for the poll tax, because the Romans wouldn't have accepted a shekel. They would only have accepted a denarius for this tax. Now, interestingly, you notice they have to go find a coin. Well, why doesn't someone have one in, in the moment? Well, remember, in the temple, the Jewish authorities would not accept Roman coins. They only accepted the Jewish coin in the temple. We're in the temple at this point, which means that people would have turned in any denarii that they had and exchanged them for the shekel. That's why we have money changers in the temple. So they have to actually go find one of these coins. Probably they go to one of the money changer tables and they retrieve a denarius and they bring the denarius back as Jesus requested. And after they bring the coin to him, he asks that well-known question that we've all heard before, whose picture, whose inscription is on the coin? And the obvious answer is it's Caesar's image because on one side of the denarius, you had the embossed image of the Caesar, profile image of Caesar. It was stamped there. And it was stamped on the coin because it reflected the fact that this coin was of the realm of Rome and it was Caesar's rule and power that oversaw the kingdom of Rome. Now the Pharisees, they viewed anything stamped with the image of a man or an animal as idolatry, as a violation of the Ten Commandments where it says that God says you are to make no image of anything you know, on earth or under the earth and so on. So they refused to even handle the coin. Not only did they not use the Roman coin uh, for any uh, commerce, they considered possession of one to be idolatry. Now, as I said, the Romans, for their part, wouldn't accept shekels. So the only way you could pay this tax, if you were going to, was if you used a denarius. Now, Jesus knew all this, of course. He knew the Pharisees' attitude toward the money. He knew their behavior with respect to the denarius, and that's what he's using against them now. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and the Greek word translated there as render literally means give back. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. What he's asking the Pharisees to do is just act in keeping with your convictions. The denarius was a Roman coin, not a Jewish coin, And the Pharisees, by their own admission, had no interest in holding on to Roman money. To them, a denarius was worthless. It had no value 
to a Pharisee. And so what Jesus is saying is, just give back to Caesar what he values as his, and don't worry about the fact that you're giving a tribute to him or giving any honor to him, because when you give away something that is worthless to you, there is no sacrifice involved in it. And unless your tribute involves a personal sacrifice, it is meaningless. In this case, they're just returning something to Caesar that already belonged to him and meant nothing to them. When we give away worthless things, it is not a form of worship. It can't be. And that's true for us, it's true for them, it's true for anyone. You only give a tribute to someone, you only give honor to someone when that gift involves sacrifice. And here's a simple way to understand that. If you're in church one day and they're passing the plate in front of you and you put Monopoly money in the plate, literally from the game, take some out of your pocket, throw it in there, is that gift honoring God? How can it? It costs you nothing. There's no sacrifice involved. And so Jesus sidesteps their trap by eliminating the conflict that they perceived between paying the tax and honoring God and no one else. He says, you pay the tax with money that means nothing to you, it's not a tribute, and therefore it's not dishonoring God. And therefore, the Pharisees and all Jews, for that matter, could be making that payment with the denarius without making any compromise to their stand under the law because it meant nothing. And that answer satisfied both the Herodians and the Pharisees. For the Herodians and Romans, they're gonna get their tax paid because Jews are now free to do it without worry of their conscience, and it addressed the Pharisees' concern because it eliminated any violation of law. And moreover, Matthew says, it amazed the crowds as it should have. And then Jesus adds something on top of what they asked him. He says, but you know what you should be doing? You should be rendering to God the things that are God's. Now what things do we render, or to use the literal translation, give back? What things are we supposed to give back to God? Well, you're supposed to give him praise. You're supposed to give him worship. You're supposed to give him your obedience. Or as Paul sums it up in Romans 12, 1, he says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, there's that word, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, what the religious leaders had been worrying about was this. They worried about extending Caesar too much honor by paying this tax. But meanwhile, they weren't honoring God at all. I mean, their lives were supposed to be like that coin. You know, that coin had a representation of Caesar stamped into it, embossed into it. And what Paul says in Romans 12 is that the lives of those who know God should be like a coin in that respect. That is, the face of God, the image of God, the character of God, it should be stamped into us in such a way that we become a representation of him wherever we go. Our very lives are supposed to be a sacrifice in that respect. And remember, without a personal sacrifice, there's no honor being transferred when you make a tribute. Instead, what these men were doing was living a life of self-righteousness, selfishness, greed, self-serving lifestyle, and they made themselves an enemy of God. Do you realize they were actively opposing the Son of God and leading others astray to do the same thing, even as they you know, worried over whether or not they should pay a tax to Caesar, which is why the Lord looks at them in this moment, and he calls them hypocrites, and he says, you should be rendering to God what it is. You should stop being concerned with following your own rules that you've made up and you argue about all day long and instead start obeying the word of God. I mean, think about it. 
How hypocritical was it for these men to worry about handling a Roman coin even as they tried to kill the Messiah? They were engaged in an ungodly, unholy conspiracy against God while arguing over how to please him with worthless currency. You know, that's what self-righteousness looks like. I mean, not every person who engages in self-righteousness worries about that issue. I get it. But self-righteousness, essentially, is judging ourselves by our own meaningless standards instead of being subject to God's standards in his word. And the Pharisees made self-righteousness into an art form. They were completely oblivious to the need to serve God through a life of obedience to his word, and they worried about the, the most minute, irrelevant details of everyday life, rules they made up, which they declared, if we keep our rules, we are righteous. That's self-righteousness. And as a result, they had presented this poll tax situation to Jesus as an either-or. Either we obey the government, or we obey God, we can't do both. And Jesus turned around and he made it an and both. He said, yes, you can do both in this case because you've made something out of nothing. You've created a problem that didn't exist. By the way, that's something worth considering as we pass through this moment. That is, the Lord wants us to set example uh, as good citizens under whatever society and government he puts us in. And part of that is living in obedience to the government. Paul says in Romans 13, 1, that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God, and they have opposed, those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So only when a government's demands come into direct conflict with God's word are we placed in a position where we might have to disobey the government. But I'll tell you, in my experience, friends, those moments are few and far between. Most of the time, as you see here, there is an opportunity to do both. Look, you're gonna get a lot of tests in these days. I think we've seen already a few, but I suspect there's more coming and probably more than we understand even now. And some of those tests will include things like how do we obey both the government and our demands to the scripture in obedience to God. But here's what I can tell you. If you're patient in a trial, if you look for the good that God is doing in it, if you seek ways to do both the things he's asked us to do and not just pick one arbitrarily for your own sake in self-righteousness, if you don't take the easy way out and follow your own rules instead of keeping with what scripture says, if you work hard to represent Christ, the image of Jesus embossed on us, so to speak, in the way we live our lives, then God can do a lot of good things through this time. I find it interesting that the church has been forced outside its pretty buildings all over the world, back into the neighborhoods where it probably should have been in the first place, doing ministry in ways that are personal, one-on-one, rather than in large gatherings where we can feel good about the experience, but we wonder how many people did we really impact. Gatherings are not wrong, and we'll go back to them one day, I'm sure, but in the meantime, We ought to be thinking about whether we're taking full advantage of the opportunity God has given us in these days to reflect him like a coin into the world of people that we interact with now, a world that's scared and a world that's worried and doesn't know what's coming. What a fabulous opportunity. Don't miss it. Don't miss it by leaning on self-righteousness, on a desire to follow our own rules in some limited sense rather than to follow the word of God and to use our life then as a living sacrifice, a testimony to what God is doing. That's our opportunity right now. And as Christians, shame on us if we come through this whole moment, this trial, and not gain the good of it that God has asked of us, not taken advantage of it for the sake of the gospel. To just sit in our homes and do nothing and wait for life to come back to normal, if it does, it will come back in some form, 
but let it come back with us having achieved everything we can in the time he's given us for the sake of the glory of Christ. I'll see you next week here for Easter. I'll end in prayer and dismiss. I hope you'll be here with me, and I hope you'll invite some friends to be with you as well. This is a day above any other in the year when we might have an opportunity to encourage someone to be in the word with us. So let's take advantage of that opportunity. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that the sacrifice we're studying has been made and that no other sacrifice will ever be needed. How thankful we are, Father, that our sins were paid for on a cross so that we wouldn't have to do that. How thankful, Father, are we that you live inside us now, calling us to holiness and to living our life as a sacrifice so that we might honor the Lord who died for us. And Father, we thank you for our trials right now. Some of us, Father, are worried about our income without jobs, without businesses. Others, Father, are worried about their health. Perhaps some are already sick and are hoping they will recover. And for all of us, Father, the concerns of everyday life, the rhythm of life that we came to know so well having been disrupted, for us, Father, it is, it is a trial even in that. So I ask, Father, that you would give us patience an eternal perspective on these times and on the things that we will face. Help us, Father, to see the good you are doing and to trust and know that when it's all over that we will have overcome this world. And as such, Father, we can rest in that even now. Help us to be that light to those around us who don't know these things. Help us to be a testimony to them. Encourage us and train us up. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.